Hi, I'm Kirsten. I'm Andrew. And this is Most Foul Mini. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to our mini episode. This week, we have a very special guest, and I'll let Kirsten introduce her. So this week, we have my mother, whose name happens to be Gretchen, but a.k.a. Mom. Welcome. Thank you. Nice (laughs) to be here. So can you start by just introducing yourself and, I don't know, telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. I am the mother of one child, you, (laughs) and I have been in education for about 50 years. Can you tell us a little bit about your true crime bona fides? So you know that this is a true crime podcast, true Mm -hmm. crime pop culture. Can you tell us a little bit about your favorite books or your favorite movies? Well, I've always been interested in true crime, and I think probably having something to do with my study of psychology while I was in college and deviant behavior. I, um, I'm a fan of Anne Rule and her work and also um, pretty much any true crime that's well written. Movies, I'm not so sure. I watch depictions of or histories of serial killers. That's one of my interests. I'm just fascinated by the criminal mind and whether that behavior begins from some kind of malfunction in the brain or if it's something that's nurtured in children just fascinates me. So for this episode, uh, we're doing a little departure from our inciting incidents from listeners who will be writing in, and that's mainly because we're recording this before it launches and we don't have listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we have very special folks sharing, and having Kirsten's mom here is wonderful. And so we were hoping you would be willing to share with the listeners the story of your inciting incident. It could be pop culture, could be movies, could be events, whatever it was in your life that really sent you on the path of being interested in true crime. Well, Andrew, Kirsten... It might seem strange. I hadn't really thought too much about this incident in many, many years. It happened in the 50s. I lived in a typical suburban neighborhood, and across the street and behind the houses were woods. And we were told not to go there. So, of course, that is immediately where I went whenever I had the opportunity. And one particular day, I went into the woods, and I met a nice man and he gave me some gum. So I came home, and now my mother probably had no idea where I was for several hours, (laughs) but immediately she noticed that I had gum, not something that we were usually allowed to have. So she asked me where I got it, and being innocent, I told her exactly where I got it, from a man in the woods. And she looked horrified. I didn't understand why, but I didn't really care. I had the gum. So can you just set the stage? How old were you when this happened? I was about five. So wandering the woods at five alone, it was a different time. (laughs) Totally different time. (laughs) So as I came upon the man, he said to me, come on over here. I have something in my lap I want to show you. And he did show me, I think. But being the 50s, I had no idea what I was looking at. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't really mean to make light of this because I do understand now 
that this kind of behavior is a precursor to much more serious um, sexual deviant behavior against children and women. So it wasn't, it was, it's not that I think it's funny in its real sense. So when I got home, I, I might also mention that I was one of five children, the fourth. So getting a lot of individual attention was not exactly um, the forte in our family. So I went off about my business after talking to my mother and shortly after my father came home uncharacteristically early from work, never happened. And we, he said, come on, get in the car. We, went to, we were going to the police station. And he took me into the police station, and I, I was given a soft drink again, something that never happened, <laughs> and lots of attention, asked a lot of questions. Still, I had no idea what was going on. And then one of the policemen hefted me onto his shoulders, and I went to a number of interrogation rooms and looked through a transom at men who were seated at tables inside the, the, uh, inside the interrogation rooms. I thought this was just about the most fun I'd had in a really, really long time. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was just great attention, being in the police station and so forth. So I really didn't have a negative kind of um, understanding of what had gone wrong until some years later when a, a friend of mine and I were coming home from the drugstore on a, or in the early evening, and we met up with a flasher. I was a little bit more familiar this time with what I was looking at. <laughs> and I knew um, not to tell my mother <laughs> this time. <laughs> so that's pretty much... And then I just wondered, you know, why would someone sit alone in the woods? What motivates people to do those kinds of things? And... That evolved over time to how seriously I thought about it. But it, it is still a fascination to me. What causes those kinds of behaviors? All criminal behaviors. So in that moment when you were in the woods, I mean, I know it's hard because looking back, you kind of put a different cast on things. And as you get older and you have more comprehension, but... In that moment, did you feel any kind of sense of danger or? Not in the least. Not in the least. I was going to look because looking got me the gum. That was all I was thinking about. <laughs> and after I got the gum, when I think about that, this man handed it to me. So he's, he was that close to being able to grab a hold of my wrist. or, But he didn't take any kind of, or at least I didn't see any kind of aggressive action. And then I went off on my happy way and nobody followed and nothing happened. So this was probably someone who was offending for probably relatively early in his criminal career. And I was very fortunate that nothing did happen. Now that would be, you know, all over the news. So I didn't feel any danger at all. And then later, did you ever talk about it with Graham again? Um, Things like that, having anything to do with a sexual nature were not conversations that were had in our house so no we never talked about it and when you look back I mean do you do you feel any kind of way about what maybe might have happened or how close you came to something bad happening 
intellectually I can think that, but I still don't feel any danger or, I don't know, I was, I really and truly, pretty much all of my life have felt pretty invincible. So no, I, I didn't have any feeling of danger. And I remember my girlfriend and I had a hard time running home that day with, after the flasher because we were laughing so hard we could barely stay on our feet. <laughs> Again, not knowing that this was precursor behavior. Right, right. Yeah, men are monsters. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> just in general, I feel like is a pretty solid blanket statement. It just makes me think of the the whole marketing campaign of stranger danger and how only living in a post-stranger danger time, like, I, w- I would just be horrified of strangers. So maybe it worked in that regard. Yeah. As uncommon as it may be compared to the likelihood of someone being hurt by someone they know, it still happens. And it's good that kids know not to take gum from strangers. I think that probably needs to be explained a little more thoroughly because I'm sure that I thought it had something to do with the gum and that there would be something wrong with it. And again, feeling invincible. No, not for me. It wouldn't be anything wrong. I did not understand at all that I was physically in danger. Yeah. Well, at five, and that's part of the shift of now a five-year-old would never be anywhere without their parent for any period of time, which we talked a little bit about in the last episode, Andrew. And our childhoods were not so dissimilar, even though, you know, we, we have the age difference that we do, which we alluded to. But, you know, sometime between when you were young and now, it's like everything changed. Well, and it's that piece of just not knowing... Like, on the one hand, because nothing happened, it's like that innocence was probably self-preserving as well. Mm-hmm. So when then after, so that was around five, and then as a teenager, you got, you had the town flasher. What age were you when you first started getting into true crime, and, and what was kind of your first foray into that? Well, now that we're talking about it, I think I had a very interesting childhood. So I grew up in a small, middle-class sort of city, and there were a number of unsavory characters, (laughs) but they were, I'm not sure what the word I want, I knew them. I went to school with them and, and their younger siblings, and so I remember there was a shorter route home from my friend's house that I could walk when I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. But it was through what people would now say was kind of a dangerous area of town. But I was never afraid because my friends lived on that street. And the, and the bars where men were hanging out in front, those were the brothers of my friends. <laughs> and I never felt... And I, I was... Um, Kirsten, I, I think, upper middle class family. Mm-hmm. Um. I just never felt afraid. Even in the evening, I'd walk home. When I think about that now, ride my bike home through that area, I never looked behind me. I never had a thought, not a fear, nothing. And now, if I'm on the street and I see a child on a bike, I'm right away. Where's the adult? (laughs) Where's the adult? I mean, we had so much freedom 
and I don't know, maybe I was a little savvier than I would. I would have no problem walking into. It was called the White Eagle Bar on the corner of the street. I'd have no trouble if I was frightened to walk in there and ask for one of the brothers of my friends to help me out, call my parents, whatever. So I think crime, and I knew that these people did criminal things, and I don't know, I found it fascinating, not scary, that these people that I could talk to normally on the street actually stabbed people and stole things and and in their in their other life but they were just kind of ordinary people with me so i think i have had an element of and it sounds strange now but i i really do think i had an element of criminality around me most of my life and it was i think an attempt to understand how those people that I knew and their siblings could actually commit these acts and still be decent people at other times. So it was trying to reconcile those two things that got me interested in in the criminal mind and criminal behavior. So what was your first kind of book that you read that you were like, this is where it's at? Um, in Cold Blood. Mm. I had a feeling she was going to say that. That's Andrews. Well, one, not not your first. That wasn't your inciting incident, but that was kind of like your pivot point, right? Yeah, that book, uh, horrifying in a way I've never known a book to be. Mm-hmm. Now, that was really scary to me. And, but, it, but see, that, that seemed different to me because that was, their, that was those, those men's whole being. At least it seemed that way to me. They didn't seem to have another side. So, yes, that was very frightening. I was curious. um, I'm sure there are serial killers and that type of thing happening today. There was one in Tampa a couple years ago, but it seems like now mass shooting is really the thing that like the ever present fear. So I was curious what it was like to sort of exist in that time when you have like Ted Bundy's Zodiac Killers, when you have, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and this wild frenzy of sort of the heavy hitters in the serial killer true crime landscape. How did that affect daily life, like seeing on the news just that wild side of serial killers all the time? I think probably Ted Bundy was a turning point for a lot of people in this country because... One of the things that stood out to me, and has always stood out to me, is that he didn't necessarily attack. He invited. People went with him in many circumstances. That was particularly frightening, I think, to people. Because it could be this, he looked like, and no matter how much we try to, I mean, that we understand intellectually that criminals don't look a certain way, I think there's something in our mind that says they have to, there have to be identifying factors. It can't just be somebody who looks like, and that's probably the the difficulty with um, assault and uh, abuse in families. You know, it doesn't look like what I picture a criminal to look like. So he was particularly frightening. But again, it was, it seemed 
The Boston Strangler was also a scary one, um, closer to home for me. But when, when you look at, you brought this up, Andrew, and it made me think about spree killing or mass shootings as opposed to serial killers. It seems, I'm no expert on this, but it seems like spree killers and, and those who perpetrate mass shootings are broken in a different way and they, they will take out this brokenness on a group of people where serial killers, I don't know how, of course, they're still broken, but it's different. It's, a, it's, a, it's an obsession that has to be satisfied on a regular basis, whatever that basis is. And it, they seem different when I think about that. Scary, yes, very, very scary. But the likelihood of a spree killer or a mass shooting, now we know that can be anywhere. It's, it's almost impossible not to be in a situation where that could happen to you. I think we've told ourselves that I wouldn't necessarily be the victim of a serial killer because I wouldn't live a certain kind of lifestyle or I wouldn't be in that, oh, there was a serial killer also along the 195 corridor during the 80s, I think. Yeah. That was pretty scary, too. I think they call that one the New Bedford serial killer. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. So, again, I think proximity for me was something, if it wasn't close, I wasn't really so much frightened about it. But now, these spree killings, or more the mass shootings, that's anybody who's got a grudge about anything can just show up at Walmart or wherever. And you can't be protected from that unless you never go anywhere. Yeah. So you mentioned Ted Bundy. Do you feel like when that news came out, it changed your behavior at all? Did you kind of change your... So I guess what I'm trying to get at is you had this sense when you were a child of being invincible and and not really being aware of danger. When was the time when you felt like that shifted somehow and you felt like, okay, I need to look behind me when I'm walking in an alley or, you know, whatever. I don't think it ever did shift. I think probably at some point, maybe um, when you were little, I had a sense that I probably should be more careful, but not frightened, not looking behind me. Just, you know, don't, don't go out on the road at night in a car with a child without a backup plan or just don't do it. Mm-hmm. But I never felt, I still don't feel vulnerable. I don't feel, I still feel invincible. I think in some, to some degree, I don't feel vulnerable. I feel like I would know what to do. But of course, there are a lot of dead people who thought that too. So, yeah. So, you know, one kind of explanation, and Andrew and I talk a lot about this because we, we don't think that the fascination with true crime is really new. And that's kind of part of the point of this podcast is talking about you know, different ways that people have been interested in it for centuries. And a lot of people will say that they think the reason so many people, particularly women, but I think Andrew would say also gay men um, and other groups, trans for sure, like the LGBTQIA community, I think maybe in general, um, as a more vulnerable community, that the interest is in part to satisfy this um, need to feel like 
their learning techniques or things to look out for or things that they might do in, in the case of an emergency, did it feel at all that way for you or did it feel more kind of removed and academic, like just understanding the psyche, as you said before? I think there were times that it felt like there was information that I could have and if I, if I had that information that I would be safer. But I part because I have gone from the 50s to present day, some of these incidents were word of mouth. Like in the town where I grew up, these crimes were word of mouth. And who knows, a good deal of that could have been fiction. But now you cannot avoid it. It's everywhere. And there are at least two or three channels on television devoted 24 hours a day to crime. So you can't not see it. And even during, I'm trying to think back when it was actually happening, I don't think that these murders that Ted Bundy committed, I don't think there was as much news coverage during as after when they knew what had happened. Same with DeSalvo or... um, he wasn't the Boston Strangler. That was the Chicago nurse. No, DeSalvo was... Oh, and then the, the man who killed the nurses in Chicago. I can't mm-hmm. think of his name. Most of that came after they discovered that one person had done this. Same with Bundy. So it wasn't this 24-hour news no, cycle where they're speculating all. as it's happening? Not at all. Not at all. And now if you if you go back to the... I don't know the name, but the two... The man and the boy who did the shooting in and around Maryland. Yeah, the D.C. sniper. I mean, you you could watch that in real time as it was happening. And that's very, very different coverage than what you would have seen of some of these other incidents. Yeah. Our brains are in sync. I was going to say the D.C. sniper is the only thing I can think of that would be in the 24-hour news cycle. See, the one for me that really jumps out is Andrew Cunanan. Um, that one. I don't know how old you were when that happened, Andrew, but I remember following and the police kind of knew he was making his way across the country just because of, you know, they were finding bodies and knew it was him, but nobody knew. And then, of course, his most famous victim was his final victim when he made it to the East Coast or Florida. (laughs) Um, We had a little joke about Florida last week. (laughs) Um... But that one for me was really, it really felt like this is, he's not done. This is happening as we're watching. And yeah, that was around the same time, mid 90s, I guess. And then you have kind of the mad world, bad world phenomenon of, well, when I studied it, it was about, we were looking specifically at the 24 hour news cycle and Fox News, but it's, it's all of the cable news and now especially Twitter, but violent crime is down. In almost every major city, like, record decades low, but people are more afraid than they've ever been because of the way that the 24-hour news cycle works and the hyping and having immediate access to every bad thing, but there's no good to counter it. Yeah, and somehow, I don't know, I follow some of those good news feeds on Facebook or wherever, and it doesn't have the same, you know... It doesn't do the same thing in your brain. It's very clear. I'm not a I'm not a neuroscientist, but it doesn't activate the same kind of thing. So it has no way to 
counterbalance, it seems, you know, or it would have to be a hundred good news for five of those really horrific bad, you know, they just have a way of like lighting up whatever part of your brain, your, your limbic system that is, is so hard. Even it, even as you know, rationally what's happening to you, that you're being pulled into this kind of negative cycle, it's so hard to look away. And there's some research that shows that seeing information about the same incident repeatedly has the same impact as those repeats being new incidents. So if you see the same thing, I remember this during um, the uh, Twin Towers. Mm -hmm. They spoke with people about watching that picture of the plane going into the tower and watching it over and over and over again was like it happening that many times Mm -hmm. from origin. So reporting and viewing information about some of these crimes, while they're horrendous, there's no question about that, but they did only happen as many times as they happened. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time, during one of those reports that you just mentioned, Andrew, people were also asked whether they believed there was more crime. And they believed there was much more crime than was actually happening. So it wasn't just that crime was dropping, but people's belief that crime was on the increase was actually happening as well. Yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing how, and then how it shaped the society. Because, again, talking about a five-year-old now... A five-year-old would never be, I mean, I have a five-year-old right now, and she's never out of our sight when we're not in the home. And yet, the kind of stranger danger or, you know, random acts of violence against children are at the lowest point ever. Um, I think it's interesting, too, and and maybe it has something to do with generational differences. And I don't want to overstate that, but, you know, when I was a child, I was expected to be far more independent then we expect, I expect my grandchildren to be independent in some ways, but not in the ways I was expected to be independent. And this is not a commentary on whether these things are right or wrong, but just they're very, very different. Children have much more protection now from everything. And so the perception of danger, one of the, I've been a teacher for a long, long time, and one of the characteristics of the millennial generation was the scared generation, just afraid of so many things. And I, and I wonder if that doesn't exacerbate the fear of crime as well. I mean, why wouldn't it if they're afraid of other things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it was a world shift. And it, it does coincide with cable news as well, but Columbine, 9-11... And then eventually the banking collapse and seeing like the lack of care and the recession, everybody losing so much, companies not actually caring about their employees. It was kind of like, oh, so the whole world is bad. Everything's a lie. And then that (laughs) mindset just sort of locked in. It takes over. True or or not. If you want to go back even a little farther, and I think this is an inciting incident for a number of reasons. The assassination of uh, President Kennedy. Mm. 
Now, that might be hard for the two of you to see, but nothing like that ever was shown on television, ever before. And it, I remember this. I was in junior high school, and it, it was four solid days, 24-hour coverage, unheard of. And that, that scene, whatever footage they had, at the time was shown over and over and over and the entire funeral and all of that that was the first real continuous televising of some some incident like that mm-hmm. and it, i mean it this is not an exaggeration it paralyzed this nation mm. absolute people were glued to their television sets so in terms of overall impact, would you compare it, 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 of the news cycle and the media, would you compare it to 9-11 in terms of shutting everything down? Yes, I think it did. Um, the, the difference is it was less sophisticated. So the, I, I think there was less to report because there was less known. Mm-hmm. And so it was, um, but it was, it was no less fascinating and it's interesting how well news outlets are prepared for. There isn't any way that they could have gone on television as long as they went on television unless hours and hours and hours of footage were prepared ahead of time on his life, mm-hmm. his legacy, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, as it was told at the time. Right. But that was a, and that was the first nobody had ever seen coverage like that ever in the United States or probably in the world Mm -hmm. so that was a phenomenon that changed and then seeing Jack Ruby shot shot Mm -hmm. on television on live television yeah now it's hard for me to you know because you see things like that now yeah it's hard for me to think with that brain right but I actually saw a man gunned down on television. Yeah. And I think from my perspective, I can't speak for Andrew, it's hard to imagine a world before the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, I remember it a little bit. It wasn't really like that when I was young, young, but that's just kind of been my normal. And I know for you, Andrew, it's been, that's how it is. Yeah, that just triggered a sense memory of 9-11 that since the reporters, everything was so frantic, I don't know if they would do this again but they just kept showing the footage of people jumping out of the windows mm-hmm. and with like circles and zooming in, showing the person that just jumped 80 stories to their death over and over again. And I'd have to do the math to figure out how old I was. I was in middle school and we were watching it on the TV and it's just like, oh, so we're just watching people die on TV in this classroom. Like, why are we doing this? What is happening? Like, so yeah, I hadn't thought about that in quite a while, but so much emphasis, like highlighting the person's dot as they were falling. It's like, why did we do that? Who did that help? Right. Well, what's interesting is you were both for both of those events, you were both in middle school or junior high. And, and I, I think it speaks to our culture that those were shown on live TV during the day where any child could see that. And now there's 
something on the Today Show or whatever, and it's, you know, these images could be disturbing, but there was no, mm-hmm. you know, take, I remember I was teaching in college when uh, 9-11 occurred, and it was, um, we had a lot of students from New York and New Jersey in the school where I taught, and it was so hard to try to comfort with no information. Yeah. And also, I remember thinking, I didn't think it, I said it. I don't, it was just instinctive. Turn the television off. Mm-hmm. We're not watching this anymore. Mm-hmm. We'll listen, I'll report to you, but we're not watching this. You don't have to stay here, but I think you should turn the television off. Because mm-hmm. I remembered that reporting of, you know, seeing a single image repeatedly can be the same as seeing that number of new images. Right, right. So fascinating. Well, and the way our brains don't understand numbers and ratios, especially big numbers and things like you can hear of someone being stuck in an elevator once and then you're going to have a fear of elevators for years, even though that's extremely rare. Right. Or almost no one on the planet dies from shark bites. Like when you really get into it and people will never go into the ocean in the whole life because there's a shark, like there's the reality of risk and then the perceived reality of risk are two very different things. Right. And yet our behavior can be quite risky in other areas where we have determined that there is no risk smoking, drinking, driving erratically, whatever it might be. Where the real danger is, we just don't seem to perceive danger. Yeah. And going back to something you said about people jumping out of the window, I was watching something the other day, I don't even remember now because they all run together, but someone was being brutalized somewhere. And when I watch it, it's really hard for my brain to understand that that's a real person and that is happening that's really happening. Yeah. So there's, there's got to be something different about viewing something on film and viewing it in person. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. It just, because I'm a pretty empathetic person, but it's hard for me to muster much. Yeah. When I'm watching it on television. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to the way that all of us have become desensitized to violence and we see so much of it. And then I think, you know, we're we're pretty neurotypical, normal, quote-unquote, good people, and we're desensitized. So what does that do to a brain of someone who is not neurotypical in a way that makes them maybe violent or predisposed to um, a social behavior? Like, wh- how does that turn out? I mean, I think the answer is probably not very well. And that's what fascinates me. How does it happen are there ways that it, that can be prevented? And I mean, I know there are ways that that can be prevented. Just dealing with children. You know, when you treat children in a violent manner, we know that they're going to act out violently. And if you treat them differently, they'll act differently. But we don't seem to... Well, that goes back to all those kinds of things that we believe what we want to believe. You know, that, that if we want a nonviolent society, we have to be nonviolent. Yeah. So thinking about how things have changed and like what was commonplace for a five-year-old a few decades ago versus now, 
there's a piece that I still don't have wrapped around like my brain around yet, but like how we've also changed from a society that 50,000 people would go see a public execution and a human dissection. (laughs) It's like in some ways we've changed in that same path, but it's hard to even look back and think about that families would be like, oh yeah, we're going to go to the execution. It's going to be a fun weekend Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to where we are now. So it's like, while we do feel desensitized, who knows exactly what it was like in a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. It seems like people had very different tolerances for execution, punishment, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's kind of been transmuted into I think the appetite is still there, but it it comes out in our movies. You know, for example, Europeans will make a lot of of the way in which an American movie, you can show boobs and all kinds of, you know, sexual things, and it is rated R or X or NC-17, but, you know, show violence, comic violence, even really, like, hardcore violence, and that is all somehow okay. And that seems odd, I think, to most cultures besides our own, that anything sexual, even healthy displays of sexual life are deemed not, not appropriate um, for kids or teenagers or even some adults. But violence is just totally fine. Um, and so I think some of that appetite for that kind of carnage has just shifted, you know, and it it gives a little just enough distance that we can still think of ourselves in a certain way while consuming consuming this violence. And I, I do think that some of what happened in our political history recently in the last four or five years is a manifestation of that. I'm not sure if we held a public execution up here in our neighborhood that people would not I think they would come. I think they would come. I think it's, we kid ourselves because it's prohibited. But when, you know, when the dogs were let loose over the last four years, there was no problem finding people to brutalize police officers at the Capitol or or still lynch African-Americans or assault kill people of LGBT communities, LGBTQ communities, I think we still have a bloodlust. It's just, I think there are, for the most part, societal reins on it. But once those reins were let loose, it didn't take any time at all for that to happen. And I think it would happen again. Yeah. That's an excellent point. I feel like the response to that so often was, this is not who we are. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, clearly it is. It (laughs) is. Yeah, it is. I think the targets have changed, and they change regularly. But that is who we are. Yeah. That is who we are. That's who some of us are, at least. And as long as that behavior is permitted, and and I don't mean explicitly permitted, permitted in any way, Mm -hmm. I think it will continue. Gretchen went there. She went full politico. (laughs) Somebody's got to. 
Somebody, somebody has to, not us. <laughs> well, I think this has been incredible. And Gretchen, I feel like you're here to steal our podcast because you're so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not interested, but it was fun being here. Thank you so much, Mom. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 